Anyway, we'll have to learn that uh, as we proceed. Uh, Maybe our next uh, time we have a hymn sing, we can focus on that one among others. Uh, Please turn in your Bibles then to Romans chapter 1. That is where we pick up where we left off. May 28th, I believe, was the last time we were in Romans chapter 1. I think apart from my sabbatical in 2012, I don't think I've ever missed a whole month of preaching, um, which I did in June because uh, of trips and various other activities here at the church. But it has been some time since we've been in our study that we began back in April on the 19th, I believe, uh, the first Sunday after Easter. And it's good for us this evening to be back in this passage, especially to the verses that we come to this evening. If you're like me, you've often wondered uh, what in the world is happening in our nation, in the world, all around us over the last several years. There seems to be an explosion of wickedness and evil happening all over the world, even as we speak, and especially as we look at our own nation. What the Bible calls evil is now being celebrated openly. People are being encouraged to engage in all kinds of wickedness. From every vantage point, it seems like the very foundation of a just and stable society are crumbling. In the wake of that crumbling, great evil seems to be rushing in to fill the void. What the Bible calls good, our society now calls evil. What the Bible calls evil, the world seems to embrace and call good. It's like a cancer spreading under the surface. It feels like every organ of a decent and upright society is infected by it. And it's easy in the context in which we're living to be given to fear. Fear for what the future holds for ourselves, for our children and grandchildren, to be overwhelmed, discouraged by everything we see all around us. But these things we know, we know because Paul is writing them here, these things have always been true in a fallen world. As Paul writes this amazing and most important letter to the believers in Rome, he is writing and living in a culture that is not very different than ours. And as he does, he provides invaluable insight into the world in which he was living and we are living today and pulls back the veil, as it were, to help us to see what God is doing And that really, I think, is what Romans 1 is about. It is about what God is doing in the world in which we are living. And so turn then to the passage we'll be looking at over the next two weeks, Romans 1, 24 through 32. We're going to examine this most important passage to better understand the revelation of God's wrath revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men in our own day as a way to better understand why things are the way they are today. So please stand as we read these verses, 24 through 32. This is God's inerrant, infallible word. Beginning in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but give approval to those 
who practice them. Thus far, the reading of God's word, all flesh is as the grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Our Father, we do now humbly ask that you would be our teacher tonight, that in the midst of a culture that would reject out of hand these words that we have read, that we, your people here gathered, would receive them with joy, would receive them to the benefit of our own souls, that we might understand all that is happening. And Father, that in all of these things, we would remember that we are your people, that you are our God, and that you have provided for us in Christ a righteousness that is apart from us, And you have saved us through him from the wrath to come. We give you thanks and praise for these and all things and pray your blessing now upon this, the preaching and hearing of your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Maybe I don't need to say it, but I'm going to say it. This is a hard teaching, a difficult teaching in light of our cultural moment. It goes without saying, as I've mentioned even in praying, that what Paul writes here in these verses has been already rejected by the world and even by many, by many within the institutional church. But that rejection, brothers and sisters, that very rejection of these things is actually proof that what the Lord says here is true. In other words, the rejection of the clear teaching of God's word, as we have it here in Romans 1, is evidence of what this passage teaches regarding the judgment and the wrath of God that is being revealed even now upon this world. As difficult as this section of Romans 1 is, and for me it's helpful to remember that the Apostle Paul gives us, before he gets into this section in Romans 1, he gives us really the end of the story and the great hope that is ours as we seek to live faithfully in a fallen world. And that is, in verse 16 and 17, the whole focus of the book of Romans, the theme verses, if you will, that there is a righteousness that is being revealed, a righteousness that comes from God and is received by faith, a righteousness that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ as it is set forth for us in the gospel. That really is the hope of the world to which Paul is writing in Romans 1. He says here hard things. These are difficult things for us, even us here tonight to hear. But they are true, but they also are in a context of what God is also revealing beside his wrath, and that is this righteousness of, what he, of which he speaks. And so I want to turn our attention to verses 24 tonight through 27. And next week, Sunday morning, Lord willing, verses 28 through 32. Now look at verse 24 with me, and it will tell us what we need to do first, because Paul begins with that very familiar word, therefore, in verse 24. When he tells us that God gave them up, which is something we'll talk about in a moment, he's telling us he's doing that because of what he has already said in the previous verses. Paul here, we know, is addressing mainly the Gentiles of the world, the nations, if you will, or the unbelieving world, those who are outside of the Jews. What his purpose in these first three chapters of Romans is, as we've noted, is to show that all mankind is guilty before God. They're all sinners and deserving of God's Uh, eternal wrath, not just temporal wrath here, but his eternal wrath. And so as he turns his attention in this first chapter to mainly the Gentiles, although I think the Jews and all mankind is in view here, but as he turns his attention mainly to the Gentiles, he is really talking about them as apart from the Jews and apart from the law. And he is telling us in these verses that this Gentile or unbelieving world has suppressed, this is the charge, has suppressed, verse 18, the truth of God in unrighteousness. He says, for the wrath of God, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, what is and how does man, sinful man, do this? What is the truth of which the Lord speaks here? 
The truth is all of that which is revealed by God in creation. His invisible attributes, as he says here, particularly his eternal power and his divine nature. That last section, as we saw, divine nature, is really all of his attributes revealed in the visible creation. So Paul is telling us in verse 18 and following that creation is an important doctrine of our faith. I have uh, been putting up, as Pastor Fisher noted, uh, this, this morning as we talked, uh, some pictures, some things that I've had in my office yet to be framed. I got them framed this past week. I put them up and we're starting to sort of feel at home there in the office. And this afternoon I put up one uh, really very treasured gift that my daughter, eldest daughter Elizabeth, gave me one Christmas, I believe. It is something that she drew and put together as a picture for me, but it is a quote by John Calvin, and I love it, and she knew I would love it, and this is the quote. It's very brief. Calvin writes, There is not one blade of grass, there is no color in this world that is not intended to make us rejoice. You see, Calvin understood the importance of creation and what creation does as it displays the character and nature of God. And that quote reminds us of how important, again, this doctrine is. In our day, I think there are many Christians who are really content to give up the ground of the doctrine of creation as defined by the Westminster Divines, by Scripture itself, when they wrote, It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. It's picking right out of Romans 1. In the beginning, to create or to make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, in the space of six days, and all very good. We could have perhaps even uh, tonight endless debates about whether or not a Christian can accept some form, any form of evolution in this understanding of what God teaches regarding creation. I would contend we cannot. God has made in the beginning everything that we see visible and invisible out of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good, just as the Bible teaches us. But Paul is highlighting the importance of this doctrine of creation because it's in creation where God's first record of himself was made and displayed to declare who he is. It's through creation, by the word of his power, all things out of nothing. God has displayed his power, wisdom, his goodness, as Paul says here, so that men might see him, that men might seek him, that men might find him and know him as God. We know that natural revelation, creation, does not lead to anyone's salvation. We know that. We know that we are in desperate need of God's special revelation as he's given to us in his word. But creation is that first step where everything that can clearly be seen, as Paul says here, and clearly perceived as he writes in verse 20. Ever since the creation of the world, these things have been displayed for men to see. So again, they might seek him. But this is the charge, isn't it? That instead of seeking God, instead of looking at the, the evidence that God has given in the world, the created world, in all that God has made by the word of his power, instead of acknowledging God, instead of worshiping God as one ought, seeing such a display of power and wisdom and goodness, man has instead suppressed the truth He's taken what that revelation is that can be clearly seen of God, and he's pressed it down, Paul says, to the end that they have become futile in their thinking and darkened in their hearts. In fact, Paul goes on to say in the rest of these verses through verse 23 that they have become idolaters. They've exchanged the truth of God, the glory of God, for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They have elevated the creation 
that God has made to display his own character. They have raised creation above God, brought God down lower, and have worshipped the creation instead of the creator. That's the context of these verses then. This is the charge against all of mankind in his fallenness. They have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now we can begin to look at verses 24 through 27 because we needed to understand again those verses and what the charge is, why it is that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. And so that's the first point tonight. God's wrath revealed. What, what is that wrath revealed? This is his judgment upon fallen man in his obvious and clearly stated rebellion against God. Because of his idolatry, Paul says, this is the wrath revealed. This is what it looks like. And you see it in three places in the verses 24 through 32. We're only 24 through 27, but look with me at verse 24. Therefore, because they became claimed to be wise... And then became fools because they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. Because of that, God gave them up. Verse 26, you have a similar reason. Because they worshipped and served the creature. Verse 25, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up. And then verse 28 And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, to recognize by the testimony he has left in creation, but instead suppressed it, because they did not see fit to acknowledge him, to worship him, God gave them up. Notice the reason is essentially the same in each one. It's because of their ultimate rejection of God, clearly evidenced in what he has made, that God gave them up. Now that has to be, I think, as you consider the phrases of the Bible, one of the most horrific sounding, certainly, and experientially the most horrific phrases in the Bible. What does it mean for God to give them up or to give them over? That's literally the language, either give them up or give them over. Now, we we know what each is because we're going to look at it in a moment, but I'm just simply looking at the phrase, God gave them up. It means, I think, and commentators tend to agree on this across the board, it means that God here is removing, as it were, the restraints and boundaries that he has put in place in our world that allows our world not to be as wicked or bad as it possibly could be. We often speak of the doctrine of total depravity or total inability. Some prefer our first point in that doctrinal statement, tulip, right? We have T standing for total depravity, and people often say and question, well, does that mean that mankind in his sin as bad as he, is as bad as he possibly could be? And the answer, of course, is no. Why is that? It is simply because God has in his mercy, some would argue and use the phrase common grace, which I uh, certainly agree with, but there's a sense in which God has put restraints upon culture and societies. In the book of Acts, he talks about God in some sense overlooking the sins of the past, that there's a, a real sense in which God for the, the, the safety, if you will, of the people who live upon the earth. Otherwise, we'd be each, at each other's throats all the time. And if we were to give in to the passions and desires that we, even as Christians, often struggle with without restraint, surely this world would cease to exist very, very quickly. So in God's mercy, it seems, the Bible would have us to understand that he has put these restraints and boundaries in place so that mankind and cultures will not be as wicked and bad as they possibly could be. One of the ways God does this is through the sanctifying or the edifying or whatever word you want to use, the presence of his church 
and his people in the midst of this fallen world. It is often in cultures through the church and the faithfulness of the church in its preaching and teaching and outreach and ministry that they serve as a, if you will, a restraint or a boundary in communities. There's lots of evidence, lots of studies that show where churches cease to exist and and cultures and communities uh, simply don't have that presence of a godly church in their midst, that there's often an unraveling of society in those places. Well, this is what Paul says is the very revelation of God's wrath. It consists of, it is focused upon God giving them, that is those who reject him, giving them up and removing restraints and boundaries. Now, again, we're only looking at verse 24 through 28 or 27. Those verses, as we'll see tonight, clearly have a very intentional focus. It's only when we get to verse 28 that we see a broadening of this giving up to all kinds of other sins and sinful behaviors and actions and attitudes, etc. So tonight our focus really is on what he says in verses 24 through 27. So that is God's wrath revealed. In Paul's understanding, his wrath revealed is God giving people over to something. Look at with me secondly then what he says, especially in verses 24 and 25. What I'm calling here, and it's helpful at least for me and I hope for you to think of it this way. What is the consequence in this particular uh, series of verses, 24 and 25, of that removal of those restraints or the giving up that God does? What is the result or the outcome of God's wrath being revealed? Paul says in verse 24 that he gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Notice, first of all, this is all throughout the active work of God. This is not a passive work of God. This is God just not simply saying, well, I'm, I'm just not going to do this anymore. This is the removal of boundaries. That's an active work of God. This is a display of his actual wrath against sin. God is actively engaged in the world that he has made and sustains by the word of his power. He removes what is in place, what is in place to restrain our natural, ungodly lusts and desires. And he says, the Lord says here, that he gives them over all of fallen humanity who rejects him as he is revealed in creation to impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies through lusts and desires. All sorts is in view here. All sorts of degrading practices are in view. All sorts. So let your imagination run wild, if you will, and imagine the kinds of things you have heard or read about or seen or understood in the world in which we live All of those things he's given them over to as they dishonor their bodies amongst themselves. Theologians tell us there are three great ordinances that God established at creation. Work, the Sabbath, and marriage. They really are the three recognized across the board by most theologians as the three ordinances established. In other words, we go back to creation when we want to understand what the nature of work is because it's a creational ordinance. We go back to creation when we want to understand what the Sabbath is, the Sabbath day. That's what Moses did when he wrote and recorded the law given by God. And we go back to creation, as we've noted recently in some of the sermons Uh, from 1 Timothy, to marriage, to look at creation for what marriage is to be understood as. Each of these things, work, Sabbath, and marriage, become corrupted and distorted in this fallen world, as we've clearly seen. 
What seems to be foremost in Paul's mind here are those things which are related to the human body, which was created by God. And I want you to see here, there's an irony that's taking place in Romans 1, an irony that takes mankind rejecting God the creator and gives him over to a dishonoring of the body that God himself has made and is called to sexual purity within the confines of marriage. God gives them over to a distorted view of human sexuality. When people think about what it is that Paul has in mind in this general expression of hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, all kinds of things come into view again. Sex outside of marriage, pornography, incest, pederasty, which is uh, adult and child, human trafficking, and countless other similar sins. Paul seems to be, in these verses, narrowing his focus upon the dishonoring of the bodies that God has made. And here's the point. Reject the creator of the body that he has made and designed for his own glory that is important because it will be raised on the last day, reject that creator and that understanding of the human body, especially with regard to sexuality in the confines of marriage, everything then because of sin and God's judgment and wrath is turned upside down. So men, and we'll see in a moment, women, turn everything upside down and engage in all sorts of dishonoring practices regarding the human body. Anything that would dishonor the human body is what is in view here. And we don't need to speak of or think. Uh, The Bible warns us about speaking too much about the things that people do in the dark, but we're not blind in the world in which we live to the all kinds of things that people do and are willing to do with respect to the human body, especially with respect to sexuality. We see it everywhere in our day. And that means something, doesn't it? It means that God's wrath right now in our culture, in our nation, is being displayed and revealed. His wrath, his judgment is already here. It's already given to us, if you will, because we have as a whole rejected God, his creation, his invisible attributes. We've suppressed all of that truth, and because of that, God has given us up. But it doesn't stop there, and it goes further. And what I think is happening here, and others agree, is that he goes on to give us a particular and visible example of that wrath being displayed and the giving up that God does to those who have rejected him and all that he has revealed of himself in creation. Paul quickly, it seems, moves to a tangible example. It is but an example, but it is true. So we can't dismiss it and say Paul just draws this out of some place and then really isn't interested in what he says. What he says is true. It's a fuller, clearer picture and example. It would have been true in his own society. Rome and Greece both well known for their practice of homosexuality. Both cultures falling and crumbling because of their involvement in this particular practice, historically speaking. And Paul wants to give a great lesson here, how God has so given men over and women over. He has gone further than just to the general sense of impurity and dishonoring of bodies. For this reason, he says, because men have believed a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions, vile passions, shameful lusts. He's beginning to target and focus now on a particular expression of this 
impurity and the dishonoring of the human body, the turning upside down of the whole created order which God had given at creation, one male, one female within the bonds of marriage, now part of this judgment of God and this giving up of God is to these particular dishonorable, vile, shameful passions and lusts. And he describes them. And the description is clear. Their women exchanged natural relations implied here with men in the context of marriage for those that are contrary and against nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women in the context of marriage as God ordained and were themselves consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless, dishonorable acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. This is a picture of what the passage from Galatians 6 speaks so very clearly. What a man sows that he shall also reap. When you sow to the flesh, and the context here is to the dishonorable use of the human body, when you sow to that, you will reap the consequences within your own body. I'm certainly not a physician. I like to play one sometimes in my own imagination. But we don't need to be physicians to understand that this principle of receiving within their bodies the very consequence of their actions is happening all the time today. When you think of just not the homosexual desires and passions referenced here in these verses, but more broadly all sorts of impurity and dishonoring of bodies. There are all kinds of things, and doctors can tell us very clearly what kinds of results that, if you will, God has built into his creation that are the consequence of men's rejection of God. That's really what Paul has in mind here. But there is no doubt at all, and again, and I've heard this and read this many times. Commentators will simply say we don't have time to go tonight into all of the reasons why it is just so very clear what Paul is talking about here. Though the world in which we live tries and continues to try endlessly to explain this passage away. There's a great doctrine one that I think Nathaniel probably already knows, but certainly will be exposed to. It's spoken of in our confession in chapter 1, where it talks about all things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but also the unlearned in the due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. That's called the perspicuity of Scripture. Fancy word. One of the favorite theological terms that most people like when they first hear it. It's a hard word to spell. There are two eyes. There's, not, there's two, three eyes, actually. Perspicuity. It's the clarity of Scripture, especially with regard to salvation. I would argue, though, with respect to this issue, the scriptures are abundantly clear. There is no place or sense in any part of God's word where he condones these acts that Paul here speaks of as being the very revelation of God's wrath. You see, that's what he's saying, the very revelation of his wrath is that a culture would be given over to the the ongoing, increasing, dishonoring passions, vile and shameful lusts, that a whole culture and society would be handed over, restraints removed, so that these things run rampant. And there is no question in my mind at least, there's no question that this is exactly what we're living in today. The emphasis, the ever-increasing emphasis we're hearing 
the attacks from every part of the world in which we live. And those not only without of the church who just simply want the church to disappear because we are the conscience of this world, but also within the institutional church, there are ever-increasing pushes and arguments being made to accept what God has called dishonorable, vile, and shameful lusts, to accept what God has described as his wrath being revealed against ungodliness and the rejection of God. The one I'm most familiar with, and I've heard it in arguments made to me personally, I've heard it in discussions I've had, is, of course, a man by the name of Matthew Vines. He's a perfect example of this kind of thinking. He is a self-described former conservative Christian from Wichita, Kansas. How can anything like this come from the land of Dorothy? How can anything, right? He wrote, I believe in 2014, what is the standard book, God and the Gay Christian, where he seeks very systematically and with some knowledge and training about God's word, etc., to absolutely dismantle what God says about homosexuality in the Bible and what the church has overwhelmingly understood for the last 2,000 plus years, 4,000 years. There is no question that the overwhelming understanding of this passage in Romans 1, 26 and 27 is that Paul here is not only condemning these acts, but he is describing them as the judgment of God upon a culture and a people. That by these acts, it is a display that his wrath has already been expressed. It's clear despite all that you may hear and all that others may say. It is the judgment of God. And these acts are, according to God's word, not just in Romans 1, but in many other places, not just as we understand creation, one male and one female united together in marriage, but in all kinds of other places, in the law and in the prophets, we see God's condemnation of these things. But here we see that the very presence of these things in the way that we see them in our own day is an evidence of his wrath being revealed from heaven. Rome knew it, Greece knew it, whether they knew it, understood it, but they knew it by experience because both cultures were utterly destroyed and historians will tell you, rightly, it's because of this, the presence of this, which itself was a display of God's wrath against them. It was God's judgment, and it is today God's judgment as well. And so when we think about the perspicuity or the clarity of Scripture, brothers and sisters, it is abundantly clear that this is what Paul has in mind here. And again, it's not simply a condemnation. This is wrong. It is an evidence of the judgment of God for their rejection of him. That leads me to three things. We're going to come back to this overall passage. I want you to see where he goes after this when we look at verses 28 through 32. Three things that, at least this week, were very prominent in my own mind that I would like to encourage you in. The first, I think, is this. And if you're like me, you, you have this tendency sometimes. Do not fear. This is his wrath. This description is the description of our own culture and society. It means we're under his wrath. It's being revealed from heaven against this culture and this society. We have rejected him as a nation, as a people, if you will. We haven't. We love him. We bless him forever as Paul does, the creator, our God. But his judgment is upon this culture. It's very clear to me, and I, I think it is to most of us here. But don't be afraid Pastor Fisher rightly reminded us this morning how much we are prone to fear in our day, to fear for our country that we love, that we understand is already experiencing his judgment and wrath 
It's a sign that it's already come. We fear, again, as I've said before, for our children and grandchildren. We know the history. We know what happens. We know the end of the story. All of that can lead to paralyzing fear. But let us be reminded that we have not been given a spirit of fear or of timidity, but of power, of love, of self-control, of a sound mind. Now, that last one, sound mind, is going to be important next week because that's not what those who reject God have any longer. But we do. This world is not our home. It just isn't. We belong to Christ, and no amount of persecution or enmity by this world will be able to separate us from his love. There is no enemy great enough to destroy what God has promised. The United States of America much to your dismay, is not heaven. It's not the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ of which we are made a part if we are his followers. The days in which we live under the wrath of God as his people call for courage and conviction, settled and established upon his word. And remember, though God is pouring out his wrath upon us as a nation, As Romans 1 tells us, even as we speak, it is not yet the day, the final day of his wrath, of which he speaks elsewhere in chapter 2, for instance. And until that day, there is always time, always time for God to grant repentance, to turn aside his wrath and judgment, that we might again know his favor and his blessing. So pray. Pray as I do every Lord's Day for revival and reformation in our day. Pray that he would have mercy upon us as a nation, that he would turn the tide. He's able to do that. Historically, we see that. He's able to do that, to turn the tide of his wrath, that he might not forsake us. But whatever you do, do not fear. There is no place for fear. Secondly, there is no place for compromise. The world in which we live is always pushing for compromise on issues like this because it knows very shrewdly that if it can get us to compromise, it's only one small step from there to destroy everything that we believe and hold to be true. There is no place on this issue, on these issues related to homosexuality, desires, and acts as we've discussed them through our reports over the last five years from General Assembly. There is no place for compromise. We must speak clearly God's word on these issues with love, with compassion, never hating the sinner in the sense that we hate them and will not speak to them about the hope that is in Christ, but hating the sin and calling it what it is. We must not compromise. I think of another issue famous in our circles, of course, as those who believe God's word take it as God has revealed it. When we think about the issue of abortion, how many times have you heard this statement from well-meaning people? Well, you know, I'm personally opposed to abortion and to taking human life, but I believe we must protect a woman's right to do what she wants with her body. What in the world is that? That's compromise. That's actually more than compromise. That's approving of something that God clearly forbids us to approve. That's approving of murder. We, we can't say things like that. In these issues in which God's word speaks very clearly, there is no middle ground. I'm not talking about approaches to people who struggle in these areas. I'm talking about the middle ground of the truth of the revealed word of God. These are not issues that those who oppose what God's word teaches will allow Christians to simply agree to disagree. Brothers and sisters, we are being targeted as those who must change our position, who must deny what God's word says in order for us to be accepted. Do you love the approval of men that much, we would ask, that you would deny the truth of God's word to be accepted by others. In our culture, in our day, we're seeing unlikely heroes, aren't we? 
and I know we drift into politics and some people get bothered, but this is not politics, this is reality. The two cases, both came from Colorado because the Colorado Commission is corrupt and they are seeking to attack and destroy the Christian witness in Colorado. And two people, we know them, Jack Phillips. I remember my son visited when he was out there, his little cake shop there in Colorado. And he wanted simply, and those students with him, wanted simply to encourage Jack Phillips. Jack Phillips is again embroiled in the same debate he was embroiled. Hopefully this recent decision by the Supreme Court will put that to rest. But Jack Phillips and Lori Smith, the web designer, are both unlikely heroes in our day. According to the Colorado Commission themselves, the very commission that continues to harass these folks by their demands, they acknowledge that both of these creative people, cakes and web designers, both of them willingly, happily serve people from the LGBTQ plus community, and they always have. What they don't want to do is to use their unique talents and gifts that God has given to them to celebrate or promote things that they are opposed to out of conscience. And praise God that this Supreme Court ruled the way it did and hopefully has put to rest this issue. This is a matter of speech and expression that we have in our Constitution protections for. And they rightly judged it, and that is a mercy of God. But don't believe for a moment that the opposition to these people will stop, or to you. It won't. It won't stop because it's not enough to agree to disagree. You must not only accept what they are saying and tolerate what they are saying, you must affirm and you must practice what they are saying. And as Christians, there is no compromise. This is an especially difficult issue in our day. It is an issue amongst the people of our own church. There are people within our church, people that we know outside of the church, who are facing this issue all the time and are being challenged to say, well, I believe what God's word teaches or will I compromise? I especially want to appeal to the teenagers who are inundated, I have teenagers still, inundated every day by all of this stuff that comes through our phones, these little shorts that you see that are promoting these things very subtly, but very clearly, be on your guard. There is no compromise in these things. There can't be, because this is the very judgment of God. It's clear what is happening. And then thirdly, and I'm Sorry for the little longer than usual, but the third point is this, um, repent. Almost every commentator, everyone I've read or listened to regarding this particular passage, the one that deals especially with homosexuality, etc., they all end the same way. They all say the same thing. They say repent. And I think they say that because that's what God's word would have us to do. I think that's certainly true. Certainly true for anyone here tonight listening online who may find themselves in the midst of some struggle, not, not just homosexuality, but any sexual struggle, use of pornography, other issues related to that when the whole created order is turned upside down, any number of sins that are a distortion of what God ordained at creation and marriage, where sexual intimacy was only between one man and one woman within the covenant bounds of marriage. If you are struggling in any way, please come to us. As pastors, as elders, as officers in the church, we are here to encourage you, to pray with you, to point you in the right direction. Please come to us. If you're struggling in any way with these things, speak to us and know for certain that we will help we will not condemn you. We will pray with you and for you. We will seek to walk with you in whatever way we can to help you walk in purity of life, purity of mind. It may be that you've come in some way personally to, in, in some way, maybe unintentionally, but maybe now it's beyond unintentional to encourage 
Maybe you've compromised your views on this issue, even accepting and calling good what God calls evil. That's a hard thing to do in our culture, especially with the whole trans movement and the requirements that are being made of people to speak this way or that way. There is pressure all around us to do so in our day again and again. But I call you, if you've compromised in these things, I call you to repent, seek counsel and encouragement that you might be a faithful witness for truth and love without compromising on what God's word says. But this is why all commentators do this, because in a sense, any time we speak of God's wrath, it always includes a call to repentance. Because remember, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And so there's always an appropriate call for God's people to repent. This Wednesday night past, we studied Ezekiel 6, and I was really struck as we read through the judgment of God upon the southern kingdom, Judah, having watched the northern kingdom destroyed by God's judgment, how God speaks through Ezekiel to the people. And he says, when this judgment comes, he says this, and they will be loathsome in their own sight for the evils that they have committed and for all their abominations. You see, something happens when we are suddenly awakened to the wrath of God being revealed. We may not be guilty of the sins for which the wrath is being revealed, but we're guilty of sin. And so it's a reminder to live a life of repentance. But as you do that, brothers and sisters, as you do that, in the midst of this wrath being revealed, please don't forget there's something else being revealed constantly And it is the righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel, our only hope who has come to deliver us from the wrath that is coming. So even as you repent, look again and afresh to Christ and remember he is your righteousness. Let us pray. Our Father, these are hard things for us as we gather here this evening But for us who love you and your word, they are true. And we delight in them and rejoice in them. And pray again, as always, that as your wrath is being revealed even now, in this very nation, in our culture and society, we would plead for mercy. And we would plead that you would turn the tide of these things and grant us repentance And Father, revival in our day, we ask. But for us who belong to Christ, keep us from fear, keep us close to him, keep us faithful, mindful of the days in which we live, faithful witnesses of yours, holding out the hope that is in Christ to all of those who are under your wrath. We pray that you would grant us grace to that end, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.